namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Oma Gyana Timarandasha, Janajana Shalakaya, Chakshul Mitam Jaina, Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha. I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Sri Chaitanya Manovistam, Stapitam Jena Bhutale, Swayam Rupa Kadamayam, Dadati Swapadantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada? who is established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet. Vancha kalpa tarubhyasya kripa sunubhyavaja patita anam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone, and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda. I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita Gadadhar Pandit Shri Vasthakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Shri Shri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. So today is Tuesday, January 11, 2022. We are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 12, Birth of Emperor Parikshit, Text 35. Ahuto Bhagavan Rajna Yajya Itva Dvijar Nipam Uvasha Katichin Masan Surtam Priyakama Kamyaya Ahuto Bhagavan Rajna Yajaitva Dvijar Nirpam Uvasha Katichin Masan Surdham Priya Kamyaya Anuta Ahuta, sorry, being called by Bhagavan, Lord Krishna, the personality of Godhead. Ragna by the king, by the king. Yajavitva. Causing to be performed. Vijaha. By the learned Brahmanas. Nirpam. 
on behalf of the king. Uvasa resided. Katichit, a few. Masan, months. Surdham, for the sake of the relatives. Briakamyaya, for the pleasure. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Lord Sri Krishna, the, the person, for the personality of Godhead, being invited to the sacrifices by Maharaj Yudhisthira, saw to it that they were performed by qualified twice-born brahmanas. After that, for the pleasure of the relatives, the Lord remained a few months. Purport. Lord Sri Krishna was invited by Maharaj Yudhisthira to look into the supervision of the performances of, the, of Yagna and the Lord to abide by the orders of his elderly cousin, caused the performance of yagnas to be of yagnas by learned twice-born brahmanas. Simply taking birth in the family of a brahmana does not make one qualified to perform yagnas. One must be twice-born by proper training and initiation from the bona fide acharya. The once-born scions of brahmana families are equal with the once-born shudras. And such Brahmabandhus, or unqualified, once-born scions, must be rejected for any purpose of religious or Vedic function. Lord Sri Krishna was entrusted to look after this arrangement, and perfect as he is, he caused the yagnas to be performed by the bona fide twice-born Brahmanas for successful execution. So today's verse brings up three points. To invite the Lord into our lives. He will make us qualified, and then he also works to please us, right? So we discussed qualifying as a brahmana in a previous class um, in which we were also talking about how to be qualified as a brahmana. So I'll just um, bring up a few additional points about being a brahmana. We discussed before that we can be born, right? Previously, that was the qualification, and then you study in that family, but Prabhupada makes the point here that we don't have qualified brahmanas just because someone's born in a brahman family doesn't necessarily mean that they are qualified. And so now we have a whole system in which one can qualify oneself despite their birth, and that is through acts of service to Krishna. So in the Sri Bhagavatam, uh, Canto 7, Chapter 11, Summary, the Prabhupada's summarizes, the principal occupations for a brahmana are worshipping the deity, teaching others how to worship the deity, studying the Vedic literatures, teaching the Vedic literatures, accepting charity from others, and again, giving charity to others. A brahmana must make their livelihood from these six occupational duties. It's very simple. Prabhupada lays out a very simple formula for qualification as a brahmana, the activities of what a brahmana does. Worships the deities, teaches others to worship the deities. So you might think, well, I don't have um, second initiation, I don't have brahman initiation, so how can I worship the deities? Or you're not in a position to worship the deities because you have an outside you know, job that you do nine to five, you can't always make it here. There's a, I didn't quote it down, but there's, um, I read that Prabhupada had said that just coming in front of the deities and praying to them and 
just enjoying the the image and glorifying that image is worshiping the deities. So if you're doing that and then you're teaching somebody to do that, you know, to offer obeisances in front of the deities, to pray, how to pray in front of the deities, that's also teaching worship of deities. Um, he also, I think I quoted previously, I didn't write it down this time, but just watching someone perform the arti is also worshiping the deities. So when we watch, you know, our great Pujari here, Atirnath Prabhu doing the puja, offering breakfast to the lords, we also, it's as if we were also doing the same activities just by watching him do it. So coming to the temple, or, you know, now we have these great technologies so we can watch online these performances happening. We can watch any temple all around the world because of such technology. So even if we can't come to the temple or if we can't perform intimate services for worshiping the deities, and there's so many, right? There's um, actually getting on the altar, doing the arti. You can bathe and dress the deities um, every day. You can cook for them. You can offer the food to them. You can support the deity, the devotees that are doing these things. You know, I've shared before that before I even had second initiation, um, one of the services that I did was to help the devotees, the pujaris, put away all of the paraphernalia of after they came down from the altar addressing the deities. So that's a form of deity worship. Studying the Vedic literatures and teaching the Vedic literature. So it's not enough to just study it for our own knowledge. It's important to teach it as well. And that's in whatever capacity that you're able to, right? I've talked previously about making sure we take time to read every day. Um, so that's important. That's Reading is important. And studying is a step above reading. Right? We just So studying means like, you're reading the information to understand it, to incorporate it into your lives, to make have realizations about it. And then in order to really cement those realizations, you have to teach it, talk about it. Um, even discussing it amongst peers is a form of teaching, even if there's not a hierarchy in the sense you're just discussing it with each other because you'll have different realizations than the other person will have. And they'll have different realizations than you'll have. So you're teaching and studying at the same time in an activity like that. So it's really important that we you know, engage in those activities routinely. And then accepting charity from others and, again, giving charity to others. And charity is anything from the financial you know, money donations to time donations to um, you know, any service donations. And it's I was thinking about this, that it's pretty easy in some senses to um, perform services, to, you know, come here, volunteer my time, to teach the Srimad Bhagavatam, to volunteer my time, to dress the deities, to serve in other ways. It's not as easy to accept charity, I find, um, because it puts one in a vulnerable position. I know I feel extremely vulnerable if I have to ask for help or if someone's giving me something. It feels awkward almost like, wait, who am I to deserve such a gift or, you know. But we have to understand that it's not necessarily about us. When we ask someone for help, we're giving them the opportunity for service. 
And if we accept charity or accept a gift or something along those lines from someone, we're giving them the opportunity to serve as well and to donate and give charity. So all six of these are very important in the livelihood of a brahmana. Prabhupada also says that in, you know, if these are not possible or in addition, um, just because of the way the world is, um, he was discussing how sometimes you know, a brahmana might take up the occupational duties of another class, like a kshatriya or shudra or even a vaisha. So he says, other means of livelihood are prescribed for the brahmanas, and these are four. Salina, which means livelihood achieved without effort. Yayavada, going to the field to beg for some patty. Shila, picking up the grains left in the field by the proprietor. And Unchana, picking up the grains that have fallen from bags and shops. Each of these occupational duties is successively better. So, you know, he's saying that if a brahmana is in a position that, you know, there's no deities around, there's no technology, maybe you don't have Wi-Fi, um, something along those lines, then they are able to pick up the duties of, you know, a Kshatriya or Vaisha, um, meaning they can, you know, do leadership, uh, administrative, or um, merchant, entrep- you know, uh, farming. They can, you know, get some land, tend to cows, things like that. So he was saying that if you're going to do that, you want to first, they can try something without effort, you know, getting a livelihood without much effort, or begging for some patty, or just picking up, you know, leftovers, or going to the shops and picking up, you know, unused or discarded bags. So each one's successfully better for um, maintaining one's body. And then he goes on to say in the same summary that the symptoms of brahmanas, kshatriyas, vaishyas, and shudras are very important, and therefore one should be designated only by these symptoms and not by birth. Designation by birth is strictly forbidden by Narada Muni and all great personalities. And we see this quite often now where, um, you know, we have people that are born into the Brahmin caste that think that they are the Brahmanas and everyone else is not a Brahmana and there's no way to qualify as a Brahmana. Or they may see, you know, I think one of the criticisms Srila Prabhupada had received was that he had given power of deity worship, the Brahmin, you know, the Gayatri Mantra to supposed Shudras all around the world um, that people in India saw as not qualifying as being a Brahmana. But Prabhupada says here that it's by, by these symptoms of devotional service and not by birth. In the um, purport of Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, Canto 7, Chapter 11, Text 2, Prabhupada says, The real occupational duty of the living entity is to serve the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Even if one prefers to deviate from this principle, they remain a servant. That is one's eternal position, but one serves maya, the illusory material energy. So in one way, shape, or form, we are serving God. We're serving Krishna. Because that is the constitutional nature of who we are, of the soul, is 
to serve Krishna. So either we're serving Krishna in his spiritual energy as Krishna, or we're serving Krishna as his material energy, Maya. So we have to constantly make this decision of how we're going to serve. And if we're not consciously making the decision of how we're going to serve, we are automatically almost uh, serving Maya. And I talked about this previously, where we want to come to the point where we don't even have to think about serving Krishna. It just it's automatic. Right now, because of our you know birth and our desires and our conditioning from millions and millions of lifetimes, we are automatically serving Maya unless we're you know consciously thinking about serving Krishna. So in Bhagavad Gita 10.10, Krishna says, To those who are constantly devoted to serving me with love, I give the understanding by which they can come to me. So we qualify ourselves to um, devoting ourselves to Krishna, right? So we first devote ourselves to Krishna. We take up some service. We serve him in some way. And he qualifies us to to actually perform our services, to to devote ourselves to him. So today, we were, the verse we're talking about, that Krishna had to qualify the brahmanas, right, to find the qualified brahmanas. Well, that's how he does it. He's, he actually qualifies us by looking at our own activities. So it's not that I can say, oh, well, I'm, um, I don't have to do anything. I have to make no effort, and Krishna will qualify. I have to show some qualifications. I have to show some desire to serve Krishna. And then he'll give me, you know, the knowledge in which to come to him, the understanding to come to him. So we take one step towards Krishna, and Krishna takes ten steps towards us. You know, he gives us the qualification disproportionate to what we've actually earned. So, you know, in the sense of I went to school for so many years to become a doctor, and I earned that qualification of being a doctor. Let's say I only did you know, the three years of residency to be a general practitioner, which is what I did. But somehow or another, because I did that, I became qualified to be a orthopedic surgeon, which is usually about seven years of residency training after medical school. Well, that that's not how the material world works. You earn, you know, you get the achievements as you earn them. You don't get more. But in the spiritual world with Krishna, we get so much more achievement than we've actually done because of his mercy. Because he's so pleased with us that he works to please us. And that's the other point that was made in the purport and in the verse today, that you know Krishna acts for our pleasure. And we may think, well, how is that possible? You know, look at the material world. It's so filled with misery. It's so filled with, you know, lying, cheating, um, all the, the propensities of making mistakes, finding faults, all of these things that go on in the material world, you know, war, famine, pandemic, you know, this virus that's still taking its toll on everybody. Um, although it's not as deadly, the strain um, is not as deadly as the previous strains, you know, getting sick is no fun. You know, I think, I can't remember the last time, but I remember... Um, when I would get sick a lot when I was younger, that feeling of the 
runny nose and that sore throat and, you know, the itchy eyes and the cough. That's very, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling. You almost can't do anything else because it's so uncomfortable. So we um, want to, we want to say sometimes we have this thought that, well, how is Krishna pleasing us? Look how much misery is filled in the material world. But in a way, this misery of the material world is what we've asked for. You know, Krishna is giving us what we asked for. We desire to be in control. We desire to be the master and the one in, um, in power. And Krishna says, well, in the spiritual world, I can only be in power. I'm the only doer. So I will create this whole world for you in which you can become you know, the master of your own world, right? And so in a way, this whole material world is him endeavoring to please his devotees. Now what happens is that we have our own ideas of what's actually going to make us happy and we try to gain control and then, you know, you're doing the same thing and someone else over there is doing the same thing. So we have, instead of one big circle where everyone's, you know, working together and we're forming these beautiful ripples. You're forming a ripple of circles over there and I'm forming one here and then they clash, right? And so then, you know, in order for someone to feel like they're more in power, they have to gain power or put somebody else in less power. So you have war, you have, you know, this inequality because of this our own desire to be in control, to be the controller. However, even in the material world, even when we've make it, made this decision to um, come here to become the controller, we have any opportunity to say, wait, I'm not happy here. I want to know what's really the truth. I want to know what's really going to make me happy. I want to know who God is. And I want to know my position in relation to God. And, you know, what is my relationship to him? So then we start to think like this, and Krishna sends us, you know, information about that. However, we're willing to um, dedicate ourselves to that information. So, you know, it can be in the form of we run into a devotee on the street who gives us a book, and we may take that book and put it in our bookshelf, you know, and it sits there until one day we, you know, something or another, we pick it up and we may start reading it. And then it starts to affect our lives. Or I've heard stories where somebody's picked up a book and they put it into their library. And their child, their son, daughter, you know, grown up, sees the book, reads the book. And, you know, they're like, wow, I want to learn more. So there's so many ways that Krishna can come to our, our hearts. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 15.15, I am seated at everyone's heart. And from me come remembrance, knowledge, and forgetfulness. By all the Vedas, I am to be known. Indeed, I am the compiler of Vedanta, and I am the knower of the Vedas. So, again, this is like a big circle, right? He helps us to forget because that's what we want to do. But he also helps us to rem- remember when it is what we want to do. And when, it, when we want to remember, he gives us the knowledge to remember, the understanding, right? Because he is also the knowledge. So he gives us the knowledge, but he's also the knowledge. 
And so he um, assures us over and over again in the Bhagavad Gita that if we make such endeavor, he will, you know, uh, reciprocate, not in kind, but tenfold, right? So, again, in Bhagavad Gita 9.22, Krishna says, Those who always worship me with exclusive devotion, meditating on my transcendental form, to, they, to them I carry what they lack, and I preserve what they have. So he's always going to fill in for us as long as we're serving him, and as long as we're um, endeavoring to deepen our relationship and strengthen our relationship to Krishna to understand who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And this isn't that he's favoring, you know, the devotees over people that aren't making such endeavors. He just says in Bhagavad 9.29, I envy no one, nor am I partial to anyone. I am equal to all, but whoever renders service unto me in devotion is a friend, and I'm also a friend to them. So Krishna is saying, over and over again in the Bhagavad Gita, that he is, you know, our friend and that we're very dear to him. And when we're dear to, when someone is dear to us, we want to please them. We want to make sure that they're happy, that they're protected. And Krishna reassures us over and over again that he, he protects us and he helps us to find true happiness, that internal joy that we can find by reconnecting to Krishna, by realizing who we are. And all we have to do is invite Krishna. Yudhisthira invited Krishna to stay. And so Krishna stayed, you know. So all we have to do is invite Krishna to stay in our hearts, to stay in our lives. So how do we invite Krishna to stay? Any ideas? No? Well, one key way to invite Krishna to stay is to chant japa, to to chant uh, mantra meditation, his holy names every single day, because that's how we learn our relationship to Krishna. If we chant attentively Krishna's names, right, and realize that they're non-different than Krishna, so when we're chanting japa, we're actually inviting Krishna into our lives. I love giving the example. It's like if you're inviting someone for lunch or you're inviting them over for you know, herbal tea to catch up on each other's lives, right? Or to just hang out. So we're inviting Krishna to hang out when we chant japa, when we chant mantra meditation, his holy names. So we want to focus when we're chanting japa. And what are we focusing on? We're focusing on hearing the names, um, chanting the names, right? We're focusing on Krishna and the glories of Krishna, his pastimes. But we're also focusing on what is our aim in chanting japa? Are we just chanting because we were told to chant and it's mechanical and, you know, it's routine and we have to do it, right? So what is our aim? What are we wanting to do by chanting japa? So that's another way of focusing is that we're looking at what the end goal is. And the end goal of chanting is to feel love for Krishna, to invite, you know, to hang out with him, to spend time with him, to deepen our relationship with him. So if we're thinking about that when we're chanting japa, it's 
still, you know, we can still chant mindlessly and mechanically, but it's a little bit harder if we're starting to focus on what is it that we want to gain from chanting japa. And we're intentionally directing our chanting towards Krishna. You know, it's not just, okay, I'm just chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. No, I'm chanting with the thought of that this is a conversation with Krishna in some form, right? Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So, we want to make sure we're directing our chanting toward Krishna. And then we're making an effort, even if we're not fully attentive, even if we are you know, directing our chanting to Krishna, somehow the mind starts to wander. But if we're making that effort, you know, it builds upon that. Um, we're trying to consciously chant in here. We're trying to be fully attentive. And we're making an effort to do so. Um, other things to make an effort is to set aside time, right? I always say put it in your schedule that this is the time I'm going to chant my rounds, chant japa, um, because then, you know, you've given it a little bit of an importance. You can set an alert where it tells you this is the time. You know that this is the time, so you, you know, start to prepare your mind to, to be able to be present, be in the moment, um, and then you can also make sure you're making an effort to create the surroundings, the environment. You know, do you have a nice place to chant japa that's free of distractions that will help you to remember Krishna? Maybe you have some nice pictures there. Maybe you light um, an incense or some candles or, you know, in some way you engage the sense of smell, the sense of sight, you know, when we chant on our beads, we engage the sense of touch. Sometimes the beads will have a scent to them. So again, another sense of um, smell is engaged. And then we're chanting, so engaging our, you know, sense of hearing as well as our sense of speaking, right? So we're trying to engage all of our senses as an effort to, you know, to be able to really consciously chant. We can also do other things to help us to prepare to chant is, you know, going to bed early so that we can get up early and try to chant in those morning hours where the energy is very peaceful. It's very conducive to chanting. You know, when I am able to get up early in the morning and chant my rounds, it's a different thing than even when it's like 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning and I chant my rounds. And 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning is still a different thing than chanting my rounds at 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, right? So there is a difference there. However, the important thing, the most important thing is to find time. So if 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening is the only time that you can chant, then that is the best time for you to chant because it's better to chant when it's the best time for you rather than thinking of this ideal situation. Now, again, it's one of these things that we know that this is the ideal, yet this is what we can do. So we're constantly meditating on being able to achieve the ideal. And that's another way of making an effort. I can't, you know, in this moment, because of my schedule, because of my obligations to family, or whatever else might be our reasons for not being able to chant, 
in the mornings, you know, we can say, I pray to Krishna that at some point we achieve that effort, you know, that achieve that um, ideal of being able to chant in the mornings. And I've even talked about, you know, ideal is chanting all of your prescribed rounds, whatever um, number that you have vowed to chant of the Hare Krishna Mahara Mantra all at once because it gives you a better shield of armor. It gives you, it puts your mind in a different place. However, if you don't have that kind of time at one time, it's, inc- it's okay to break up your rounds. If you're doing 16 rounds and you do four in the morning, four in the afternoon, four in the mid-afternoon, and four in the evening, you're still getting your 16 rounds in. And hopefully at each interval, you're working to maintain that conscious chanting, that that interactive chanting, right? Even if it's a lunch break or you have a few minutes here and there and you can chant one round or two rounds, it's still important to do so. Um, Another thing that helps you from the night before is to eat a light dinner, not eat something so heavy that's going to disturb your sleep and then make it harder to get up. And then when you get up in the morning, it's, you know, you're still sleepy and you're still kind of digesting the food. So, you know, you're tired, your body is not there. Um, exercising regularly is another way to help keep focus. You know, it's been shown that if you exercise regularly, it helps your brain um, find clarity and focus even more. Um, so one of the things that I try to do is, you know, like yoga routine stretching before I chant because that kind of gets the blood pumping throughout the body. So if I have to sit, I've already stretched so my body is a little bit more prepared to sit or walk or, you know, things like that. Um, and then other things that we can do to make an effort is to read about Krishna and his pastimes. We have the wonderful Krishna book by Srila Prabhupada that we can read. Um, you can always read like a few minutes before you chant. Um, you can have some affirmations that you can meditate on during your chanting. Or before you're chanting. You know, my favorite one is, I want to chant. I, I get to chant. I want to chant. I love to chant. And it's a great affirmation because most of the time we're thinking, I have to chant. I should be chanting right now. I need to chant, right? Which doesn't invoke a sense of love, a sense of um, consciousness in that moment. It's like this obligation. And when we think, I have to chant, oh, I should chant, it invokes that mechanical routine chanting. If we start to tell ourselves, I get to chant, I want to chant, I love to chant, then it puts us in that mindset of this is something that we really enjoy. And the brain is such that if we start to tell it things, it believes it. right? So if we're repeating this affirmation, it's going to believe it. After a while, we're like, oh, okay, I actually do love this, right? This is... Great, I can chant any time. And then the final thing that we want to focus on or we want to realize when we are chanting is to let go. Release everything else for the moment. Be in that moment. Let go um, and give that control of the moment to Krishna. You know, to say, look, this is the time that I'm spending with you and I'm not going to worry about anything else because I know that you'll take care of everything else. Um, we can, in this moment, um, 
also surrender to our spiritual master, um, knowing that he's guiding us to chanting better, you know, asking him also to help us um, chant more attentively. So these are some things that we can incorporate almost immediately as we chant our japa. If we still have some rounds left, we can try that immediately when we're sitting down, you know, to have that focus of why we're chanting, of um, making an effort to chant consciously, to chant attentively, and then letting go of everything else and just giving ourselves to Krishna in that moment. So I will stop here and see if we have any questions or comments. class this morning? My pleasure. Can I just have some little brainstorms? I didn't ask yesterday, and I put myself in this rush about, oh, I should have asked this before I finished this devotees. Um, one thing was just um, that you said I wanted to actually touch on and to, to teach at our own capacity. I think that's really healthy and beneficial preaching movement but uh, movement of Prabhupada's and so my own journey has been only to offer things to people without unsolicited advice or being preachy whatever the case so I enjoy that that was real helpful uh, in my own capacity learning what that is you know probably more uh, palatable or even convincing you can tell something much easier when you believe your own thing and if you're Again, teaching at my capacity, my level of realization can be explained. I have a toddler now, so it's exciting to dumb down my process, if, if, whether it's just words or whatever. And sometimes it, I'm learning with children. It's not even about talking or mirroring the action. But when preaching, I think what, you, what you're saying is our own capacity. You can almost teach without saying a word. I just heard it from St. Francis. That it's better. So I appreciate that. Yes, leading by example is the most important way of teaching. And we saw that with Srila Prabhupada. Yes, I'm learning. Thank you for that. And here's a question for you. It's always, um, I, I get the info from different devotees. Uh, different devotees say different things. But it's exciting that you're here uh, today. Maybe you could enlighten me with your perspective or debate. Is, is the mood more important in, in the service? The mood, someone's intentions or trying? Or is it actually more important to have that task perfected? Or is it both? Maybe you could help me understand. So um, the question is, when we're doing a service or a task, is the mood important or is the perfection of the task important? And I always think the mood is the most important thing, right? What is the mindset behind why we're doing something? Because, you know, I could, I could be serving the deities with the mindset of, well, I'm doing this for you, so what are you doing for me, Right? I'm serving, the action is the same. I mean, I could dress the deities beautifully, and I'm thinking, well, I did this for you, now what are you doing for me? I'm asking for so many things. Or I can dress the deities haphazardly, but I'm thinking the entire time, Krishna, I'm just wanting to please you. Please, you know, guide me to please you the most, right? So, um, 
it's the thought that counts, right, in some ways. Now, obviously, if you can have both, that's going to be the best. If you can have the mindset as well as the perfection, um, that's great, too. I always like to think of progress is perfection. So as long as we're progressing on that path, that is perfection. Because we want to make sure that we're not, you know, letting perfection paralyze us. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we think, well, if I can't do it well, then I'm not going to do it at all, right? We don't want to fail. We don't want to appear stupid. We don't want to, you know, put our reputation at stake, right? So we may not try something. We may not even endeavor something because we think, oh, no, I want to be really good at it. But a child, as you know, doesn't think, well, I'm not going to attempt to move around until I can walk perfectly, right? They, they move however they can, and then when they can take that step, you know, wobbly as it is, and they fall on their backside, they don't think, oh, I'm never going to try this again because I fell, and how embarrassing. They just laugh. You know, they think it's funny. So they get up and they try it again, and they keep doing it until they can achieve their level of capacity, right? So I know that's been one of the biggest thrills of watching my nephew progress. Like, you know, one, one time I'm seeing him and he's crawling, like barely crawling. And then the next time he's like crawling like a champ. And the next time, you know, he's standing up with somebody's hand and walking. And the next time he's standing up by himself, but he still needs someone's hand to walk. And then the last time I saw him, he's, like, walking like a boss. Like, he walks into the room like he owns it, you know. And he's he's um, just turned, like, 17 months. And so, you know, he's really progressing there. But no time did I ever see him think, oh, my God, I can't do this, and so I'm not going to. But as adults, we let so many things interfere in our mindset like that. Like, I can't do it perfectly, then I'm not going to do it. But Krishna actually says in the Bhagavad Gita 6.25, gradually, gradually. He doesn't say go all at once and be perfect. He says step by step. Take it small steps at a time. And then you can come there. And you have to have determination and faith the entire time. So This is the same thing when we're chanting that we're not going to be perfect the first go around. You know, if you're First time picking up beads, you may not even know what to do with the beads. Someone's going to teach you, or you'll try to figure it out. But it's okay to not know, right? Sometimes we see, you know, um, if you're doing someone and something, somebody says, oh, you know, that's not the proper way to sit. We go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Well, there's no need to be sorry. You didn't know. And you can instead say, well, thank you for you know, explaining that to me. But our go-to is sorry because we feel like we, sh- we should know everything already and we're, we have to be perfect, right? So in that moment, it's a great um, time to practice a little humility and be like, oh, thank you for telling me. Thank you for showing me. Um, so those are some little things that we can do to make sure that our mindset is in the right, the right spot you know, thinking that we don't have to be perfect, that it's progress that we're looking for, and that Krishna will help us, right? He, he guarantees us. He's going to 
you know, preserve what we have and carry what we lack. I hope that answers your question. Do you have any questions? Comments? That was a in- interesting question that he just asked, and I, I guess I'd kind of like to act, ask about that also because I know that when it comes to getting things done, it's either you, you know, like you said, it's anything worth doing is doing right, or it should be done right, and then the mood isn't it. Isn't it sort of like the the same thing to have the mood and the accomplish the task? Is like, let's say your job is to have it is to do the Arctic, and you know the Arctic has to be done at eight fifteen, and then it has. There's so much. There's certain articles that you have to offer, so. When we say the mood is is important, it, it seems like that actually getting it done right and on time is 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 really important, like the most important thing, because you know our mood may be we can have so many moods, you know, what's going on in our mind how we feel about things but it, the bottom line is isn't the, is is actually getting done it's like you probably have to open your office at a certain time every day right is there like a, a sign on that that says that your doctor's office opens at a certain time i mean if yeah when i was practicing there was that like you you have a boss Oh, me. No. Okay, but you have like, you know, people expect you to be there. Like, let's say you have a. a yeah, doc- if I have an appointment and I have to yeah. be there at a certain time. You have appointments, so you. It, what your mood is is sort of isn't that co- like connected to getting it being there so on time? It, it's it comes down to that same debate that we have about um, chanting to get sixteen rounds done or chanting for quality, right? And both are important. And I've even quoted previously, I mean, I can look it up in here, but, you know, Tamal Krishna Goswami said that until we can chant quality rounds with attention, the number is the most important thing. But always with the idea of we're progressing towards that attentive chanting, not just for, you know, getting the rounds done, not just for the, getting the arti done. Our goal is to have the mood of service. Right? No matter what else is going on, when the pujari steps on the altar, the idea is to put all that aside and concentrate fully on Krishna. Now, does that happen all the time? No. And then in that case, then the time and the, it getting done is the most important. However, at some point, we want to get away from that mechanical routine to actually infusing it with love and service. Right, so that mood of love and service, not the mood of I've got to get this done, 
You know, I've got to get this done by 8.15. And the more we concentrate on getting that mood in, the more um, we're able to stay on time as well. So we may first focus on staying on time, making sure we're offering the right things in the right order, saying the right mantras. And as we get the mechanical stuff done and learned and becomes a little automatic, then we can start focusing on bringing in the mood and mindset. It's just like um, dancing. You know, if you look at, I don't know if you ever watch like the gymnastics or um, the Olympics where they have like uh, figure skating, right? And initially, you know, if you watch people training, first they learn the routine, they learn the steps, and then they start to learn how to add their own flair to it to actually feel like they're dancing and not just moving to the music, right? So it's that same kind of concept. Well, first we learn, you know, how to chant, that we're saying these words, we're chanting it this many times, how, this is how we move our beads, and then we get to a position where we're not thinking about those things anymore because we already know how to do it. Now we can work on, okay, how do we start to chant more attentively? How do we think about Krishna with love? How do we do this activity by thinking about how we're serving Krishna? Does that answer your question? So really it's both things that are equally important. It's just how do we get there? Because, again, if, if we're going to focus on, well, I can't do both the RT by 8.15 and infused by love, so therefore I won't do it at all, that's not the mindset we want to have either. All right, well, I'll end here. Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki.